This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're thrilled to talk to Stephen Vasey from Duke University. Stephen is probably best known for his 2009 AJS article, Motivation and Justification, a Dual Process Model of Culture and Action. And more recently, he's been working on building bridges between sociology and the decision sciences. It's great to have him. You're not going to want to miss it. Okay, it's Vasey, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, good. Okay. I was like, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, shit. I think you should include that. Well, actually, there's there's a rift in my family between uh, Vasey's and Vasey's. Um, uh-huh. yeah, oh, good. And I, I'm, actually, I'm, yeah. I'm actually, but I, I don't actually hear the difference. I actually say Vasey, but it, Vasey sounds totally I'm having to flashbacks to face and face painting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know uh, okay, so obviously we're going to clip this out, but yeah. just very quickly, yeah. uh, my wife was like, uh, she's like, do you really want to sound dumb on your podcast? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think Elite's actually a Gabriel fan. All right, who wants to start? I took over banter last week, so... I think Gabe has a really good one this week. Okay. Go, Gabe. Okay, so uh, this week I want to talk about the um, Weinstein scandal, which, you know, obviously is just really interesting and it has all sorts of horrifying details. And, you know, what he did to all these um, poor women, or, and um, but what was interesting to me, especially about it, aside from just watching, you know, discovering that this... A uh, person who we already knew was horrible in some ways was even more horrible in other ways. Um, I thought it was interesting primarily from the perspective of how closely it fits the model of the sociology of scandal. Mm. So yeah. if you start, first of all, um, pr- leading up to the scandal, there's kind of a pre-scandal. And you had that in a, in a prolonged fashion where over the last 20, 25 years, there's been rumors circulating quietly about this, um, although they never really came up. And in particular, we know now that there were places where they almost came up and were voiced publicly, but people didn't quite feel confident raising the accusations publicly. And then um, you have this subcritical phase, like, you know, you imagine it like a nuclear power plant where, you know, they see that the needle's in the in the yellow zone and it's just about to go critical, but, you know, that sort of thing, where you have people kind of whispering about it uh, fairly openly, a uh, little indirectly. Um, so about six months ago, Rose McGowan publicly alluded on Twitter that um, she'd been raped by a studio executive, and although she didn't say by whom. And then um, a few days ago, as of this recording, uh, we're recording this on October 10th, a few days ago you had um, – a story in The Hollywood Reporter that said that there was going to be a major story about Weinstein involving um, sexual misconduct and workplace misconduct. That was their phrase. They didn't get any more specific than that. And uh, Rose McGowan tweeted something to the effect that kind of implied, although didn't explicitly state, that this was related to her uh, earlier accusation. And then you have The New York Times come out 
with this fairly detailed story that still doesn't confirm everything. It still Mm -hmm. just alleges uh, quid pro quo sexual harassment, but it doesn't um, allege sexual assault. And then then following that, you have um, the really interesting response from Weinstein where um, he issues – and his statement was like four paragraphs and – it, first of all, has a confession of guilt, although it's vague, mm-hmm. which you can kind of understand because you know there's going to be litigation. Um, but there's mm-hmm. a vague confession of guilt. There's a sort of prolonged ritual of humiliation reconciliation under the guidance of approved moral experts, where he says, here's these moral <laughs> experts yeah. who are going to guide my reconciliation process. Um, and he refers mm-hmm. to things like intense therapy, uh, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> as, as compared Twice to the, <laughs> yeah, last, last, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, and then, uh, and then there's also, uh, most interestingly enough to me, there, there's a penance in the form of attacking the out group where there was this, um, passage at, at the very end where he basically says, and I'm going to redirect all my anger to fighting the national rifle association, uh, which I thought was almost like some nobleman who'd caught, um, you know, overtaxing the peasants, promised to go on crusade and fight the Saracens. Um, you know, <laughs> but, you know, as penance, uh, take up the cross. But, but you know, yeah. the other aspects of it followed what we know from the scandal literature, too. So this idea of like a prolonged ritual of humiliation and reconciliation that reaffirms the moral order by which yeah. one has been judged. You see that um, closely reflected in Navasky's book, Naming Names, about the second Red Scare. Mm-hmm. So when someone was accused of, of, a com, of being a communist and they said, no, I was mm-hmm. a communist, but I'm not anymore, they would have to go through a sort of ritual of humiliation as they admitted fault for ever having been a communist. And then they were reconciled into play society um, mm-hmm. by affirming mm-hmm. the essential justice of the anti-communist cause. Um, and then likewise, you also see this in early Christian ritual. Um, so, you know, t- today in a Catholic church, uh, confession is private, and they, they even have a whole elaborate architecture in order to maintain that privacy. And um, the priest is bound to secrecy and that sort of thing. But originally, if you look at the early church and late antiquity, um, the rite of reconciliation was a public confession, more like you have in some Protestant churches, where somebody would publicly confess to the entire congregation, and then they'd have a multi-year process of reconciliation before they re-entered full communion with the church. So... so um, you know, it, there's all these aspects to it, but this, and then now, since the New York Times story and Weinstein statement, we even see um, kind of the dam bursting, where you have everybody coming out of the woodwork and giving yeah. their personal accounts of how either they personally were victimized by him, or they witnessed him victimizing other people, or, right. um, you know, even if they had no personal connection to it, they, they weigh in morally. Either uh, for the most part to say um, it's repulsive behavior and almost certainly criminal behavior, if all the allegations are correct. Um, But also you you have a few people weighing in on his side and then becoming kind of the object of secondary scandal. So you had like Donna Karen last night saying Mm, that um, women are asking for it because they dress like sluts. Which was not a popular Mm. (laughs) thing to say. No, no, I'd say (laughs) not. Yeah, and. And then uh, you have all these weird stories coming out, like there was a uh, 
a reporter who claimed that he cornered her in the kitchen of a restaurant and basically forced her, when she declined to have sex, he basically forced her to watch him masturbate into a plant. Um, you know, but, but that was an accusation that she didn't come out with last week, right? It's interesting right. that she finally, or, or 10 years ago or whatever, what had happened, it's interesting that it's like this dam broke. And all of this really closely follows the model of the sociology of scandal that you see in the work of people like Ariadne and also mm-hmm. um, people like Robert Faulkner. Um, who's basically done some more work to audit, but in the context of corporate scandal, where you first have kind of a whisper campaign where people very quietly feel out, do I have allies? You know, yeah. will this be, mm-hmm. when you have a scandalous accusation, you first very quietly feel out whether other people are willing to go along with you on this um, before you make the accusation publicly. Um, and this is how it's, you know, and the straightforward model would be we have scandals because we have transgression. Right. Somebody does something that violates the norms of the community or at least does something that could be understood to violate the norms of the community. Um, But then they uh, and then it becomes scandalous. But really what we see is that there's a process of accusation that is preceded. So first you have a a process of kind of whispering and quietly feeling out and very indirect, plausible deniability kind of thing. But it's very kind of underground backstage type stuff. Then you have a, uh, a major accusation. And then you have everybody comes out of the woodwork to pile on and provide evidence as it becomes common knowledge or or shared knowledge. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking about it like a little bit differently, Uh, although now that you're now that you're talking about this, you know, I'm wondering if part of the problem is that actually that it was seen to be a norm of the community Mm. that people in power, right, um, in the industry who the vast majority are men, right? Are base they actually get to do that, mm. right? Like it's, you know what I mean? It's known, and it's only recently that, um, as women have been slowly but surely gathering more power um, in Hollywood. That, you know, so now you've got these two norms bumping up against each other, right? Mm-hmm. These men in power can do whatever the hell they want. Um, and, oh, girl power, woman power, Well, that was essentially right? part of so, Weinstein's defense, saying he came up in the 60s and 70s, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, so, yeah, but that was crazy, right? I, I, he came up in the 60s and 70s in this industry, yeah. right? You know, the 60s and 70s were also, like, you know, the height of the, the women's movement, yeah. right? So I don't, I, I guess he well, missed that part. Well, in a way, we didn't see big cultural change. Sexual harassment didn't become a major, um, I mean, I guess you had like antecedents. It was stuff like the movie 9 to 5. But my understanding is that like the real cultural turning point was the 90s, where you first yeah, had well, changes mm-hmm. in um, law and what the standards of evidence were. Uh, there was a growth in, you know, the, the, the whole doctrine of hostile work environment. As compared to quid pro quo, although this was quid pro quo, right? This has been illegal for a long time. Um, but you can have you yeah, can have a situation where norms, uh, like the public norms, are in conflict with sort of the private opinions. I mean, uh, yeah. Omar and I had uh, just did this paper in Socius where we look at uh, sort of cohort-based cultural change, and one of the things that that got me thinking about a lot was like how much some of these public changes, uh, like things that seem quick like uh, some of the changing attitudes about gay marriage, for example, are built on the foundation of like private acceptance over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so you have like lots of people basically are becoming ready all the time to assent to this thing publicly, 
But when a critical mass happens publicly, then all of a sudden you get all these people coming out of the woodwork being like, yeah, it was okay. Like, I was fine with it. It's not a big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. When I thought other people were against it, you know, I wasn't going to speak up or whatever. But now that everybody's talking about it, yeah, I'm fine with it. Well, that's, that's so really well, Was that an accurate? But it's kind of the opposite, right? Because in that case, you're talking about oh, right, exactly. somebody to accept something, whereas now we're coming to reject something. So in one case, it's, you know, uh, relaxing a norm, right? Relaxing yeah, exactly. a prohibition. Now it's creating a prohibition. Oh. Yes, it, right, exactly. It's yeah, it's creating a prohibition again. But that's, I mean, it depends on how you view it. I mean, you're, you know, sure. you're creating a prohibition against discrimination. You know, uh, I mean, right. You can think about it different ways, but yeah, yeah the uh, but the but the whole common knowledge. I mean, there's this thing in uh, with um, you know uh, reporting uh, sexual assault. Uh, they're moving toward. Uh, they're trying. Uh, some places are experimenting with this model of information escrow. You know, basically where when the first person reports that it doesn't get disclosed and it's only when a second or third person uh, accuses the same person that all the information comes out at the same time to try and protect, you know, the accusers from, uh, you know, from from a backlash. Because nobody wants to go out, like first personally, nobody wants to go out there alone, right? Interesting. Well, the, fir- the first person to come out is the lightning rod right. that will bear the brunt of any repercussions or any backlash and that, that was occurs. Weinstein's strategy for suppressing this is we know that and we and people have gone back through Lexus Nexus and search for this is that whenever somebody made any mm. kind of accusation against him he basically would plant a bunch of negative stories against that person and retaliate mm, right uh, or, or even threaten them with uh, a defamation lawsuit or that sort of thing so with it with Leslie's point about is this normative uh, my understanding is that this was much more normative during the studio system and in the more sketchy parts of the mainstream industry. So like in the studio system, so roughly the 20s through the mid-1950s, there was a very strong notion of kind of the casting couch. Um, right. And then the, you kind of had that notion within really marginal parts of cinema. But I don't think it was like an accepted thing that like if in the 1980s, or the 1990s, and keep in mind, this is not somebody who dates back to the 70s. We're not talking about Bob Evans here. We're we're, we're right. talking about somebody mm-hmm. whose career started in about 1989, and right. and his career peaked in the late 90s. You know, th- by that period, I don't think you could be hanging around the studio commissary saying, "Oh yeah, I, I, I'm going to put her in this part, but only if I get to nail her first. I mean, I, I don't think that would have been acceptable talk in the 1990s. I don't know about that, Gabe. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, this isn't my area of research um, at all. Um, but all indications from my observations, uh, I don't live in L.A., but I hear lots of L.A. stories. I don't know if I don't know if, if someone would be saying at the water cooler, I'm going to nail her. But, um, you know, I don't think someone would be saying at the water cooler the next day after having gotten nailed or yeah. else they wouldn't have gotten apart. Um, I don't think they'd be saying things in front of people. If, if you see what I'm saying, I think it's one thing to be very, very public about about a thing, right? But another thing for it to be sort of this unspoken norm that, of course, we do this, right? But we don't flaunt it. It's probably always bad for women, and probably it would have. I would have imagined that it would have elicited a smile f- among men at the water cooler in a private conversation. Well, look at the Trump thing with uh, what's his name, Billy, uh, Billy Bush. I can't remember. <laughs> Billy yeah. Bush. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah. was exactly that conversation, basically. Well, it wasn't exactly. a way, right? But yeah. that's interesting. In that, I I view that tape not as Bush affirming um, uh, Trump's overt boorishness, 
but as just being uncomfortable with directly contradicting it because it's uncomfortable to yes. directly contradict somebody. I mean, if uh, if ten minutes more into this conversation, I started talking about how, of course, the Earth was created six thousand years ago. Um, you guys <laughs> might think I'm crazy, yeah. but you'd probably be somewhat. You'd probably try and go, uh -huh, you know, and then just move on to the next topic without overtly yeah, contradicting yeah. me, just because we have a strong norm against overt contradiction. Well, do you think the reason why Billy Bush was uncomfortable was because he knew that it was No, being I think he was recorded? uncomfortable because he was talking to a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was true, but, I mean, didn't he know that from the beginning? I mean... I think he was pandering. I think so. He was pandering yeah, to the Yeah, I think that's yeah, exactly that's right. So, uh, yeah, so I'm uh, trying to force myself to learn R this year, uh, which I have oh. tried to do many times. And, uh, but this year, I have two uh, commitments that I've made. Number one is I'm not allowed to play uh, any video games for the rest of uh, 2017, because those are apparently substitutable goods in my mind. Now, did you check what the release date was for Red Dead Redemption 2 before you made this vow? <laughs> Spring 2018. Okay, so I'm safe. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to Google that. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. It was supposed to be September. Oh, yeah. really? Okay, well then, that's good that it worked out. But um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, the second one is that this, and this is uh, much harder. Well, it depends on the day, but it's much harder. Uh, I'm not using Stata at all this year, which for me is like uh, not speaking English essentially. So uh, yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I have a question yeah. uh, because you know uh, statistics and video games are kind of interchangeable in my mind too. Yeah, and you want like they are. They it's are. like it's. The Skinner box, right? You're like, <laughs> exactly. hit enter. Yeah. And am I going to get an awesome result or am I going to crash and burn? No, I, I, really, <laughs> no, I do think that's ever happened. Statistics isn't interchangeable with uh, video games, but like video games are more interchangeable with like leisure reading. Like I do a lot less just reading that's not directly related to work or maybe eventually huh. somehow it'll be related to work uh, now that I have a PS4. Oh, right. <laughs> now that's, yeah, for me, audiobooks have crowded out real reading. But, uh, but oh, oh, totally. If it's available on audiobook, I'll yeah. get the audiobook. But yeah, but video games in Stata or video games now in R, those are like correlated for me. Definitely scratches the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. Are you finding the transition to R? It's yeah. I mean, like I'm glad I'm like sort of post tidyverse. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. that oh, makes totally. things a lot easier. So I, you know, I was worried primarily about the conventional wisdom is that data manipulation is actually much easier in Stata than in R, and, mm -hmm. and, and so estimating a model is not that hard or whatever. And I, and, and but with DeepLayer, that has been um, really quite easy actually. Like the the basic verbs for that, I find really easy. And so mm -hmm. like that was the thing I was most worried about, and that's been the thing that's kind of been the most satisfying because I'm I'm doing some big data stuff where I'm moving you know, huge data sets around and it's been uh, really satisfying. So it's going well. I mean, you know, every once in a while, it's just very simple things. I'll run into a wall, like making, you know, a, a graph or whatever. I'm just like, ah, you know, that's what kills me. But uh, yeah, for just moving data around, like renaming stuff, creating new variables, sorting, merging, all that type of stuff's actually been pretty easy. Um, and the models are never that hard. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's funny. You never know what you're going to run into. And all of a sudden you just go from, you know, things go working to just a wall where you're just like, I don't know mm -hmm. that word. Like, I don't know yeah. how to yeah. say this. I have no idea how to circumlocute. You know, I'm, I'm done. 
you know. So yeah, that's yeah. Cool. are you missing loops? Are you missing I loops? Missing, <laughs> I, I know the uh, the the R banter that has emerged around. Uh, you know, actually, the podcast. Uh, you know, was a was a sort of center of this. Uh, yeah, if you can't vectorize your loop, then you know you can't do anything. So I do. I actually do miss loops. I miss loops a lot. But you can still do the loops. You can do. I mean, yeah. you're, you're so fast now. Yeah, I know. So what? It takes ten seconds instead of five seconds to. But you feel like you're you get to live. Right, you, you, get, you get to experience life, even if it takes ten seconds to execute. No, it's the loop true. It just feels like it just feels like I want to learn. Like if, if I get a fresh start, I want to learn the right habits. I guess. I mean, not even the right habits, uh-huh. but like the grammatical habits. Like, yeah, mm, you know, yeah, it works when you say things wrong. People understand you, and it works. Yeah. But it's like it doesn't. You don't sound right, and so yeah, that's part of. It. I just wanted to want it to to look right. The code to look right. Why'd you make the change? Yeah, it's a, it was a number of things. Peer I guess. pressure, right? Well, that's part of it. No, I mean, part of what happened was, like, you know, uh, I teach the first year of statistics sequence, uh, you know, here at Duke. I have done for a long time and did it at Berkeley uh, the last year I was there. And I, I really like doing it. But one of the things that happened here over time is that we just had more R users move in. So Kieran Healy teaches his visualization course in R. And Chris mm-hmm. Bale does his big data stuff in R. And for Jim Moody's uh, networks class, they do a lot of stuff in R. And Scott Lynch does, you know, SEM and Bayesian stuff in R. And so, like... I, so what happens gradually over the you know six years that I've been here, we have um, you know we've hired people or like software has changed uh, in a way that has made it so like my downstream consumers, you know essentially mm-hmm. need to know you know they want people who know how to use R and so you know I, I I always think about I always try to think about what's best for the program partly because I'm I'm DGS you know so it's like. I, I figured, you know, if I was the DGS and somebody else was teaching this in Stata, would I want them to teach it in R? The answer was yes. And once I sort of realized that was the case, uh, you know, I, the decision was was pretty easy. Plus, I, you know, it's one of those things that's always been on my, I, I wouldn't say exactly bucket list, but it's been something, I, you know, but it's something that I, I've wanted to do for a while. So it kind of was a good opportunity. I, I'm kind of in the same position you are in that yeah. I teach first quarter stats at UCLA and have for yeah. like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but our whole stat sequence is mostly taught in Stata. So, yeah, right. you know, we, we have five stats courses plus a couple demography courses. And everybody who teaches them is very comfortable in Stata. Yeah. Um, because traditionally our stats courses have been taught by demographers. And if yeah. you're just doing demography, you know, Stata is wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we're starting to develop a computational cluster. We have a critical mass of computational faculty. Yeah. And Stata is not good for anything that's not rectangular. No, it's so, true. So, but still, we have this issue that you know most of the upper division, well, not upper division, most of the later advanced classes are yeah. taught in Stata. Yeah. So what I've done is I've started starting this year. I'm teaching in both languages, oh. and um, which has is forcing oh. me to learn R. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I still will very mischievously use for loops. Um, <laughs> you know, just as like a uh, an act of defiance. Uh, you know, but. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm having to learn it in order to write it for the students because it, but I figure even if hardly any of the students are interested it f- forces me to do- learn it and it also kind of nefariously pushes even though I'm a state of person on our person right. it pushes the curriculum in the direction I ultimately want to see it go which kind of give equal weight to computational yeah. traditional quantitative uh, sociology. Yeah, I think you have to do it. I I know in our uh, in our data analytics masters program, the only jobs that were for Stata were research assistant jobs. No, mm-hmm. no, I heard you mention that on the podcast. That was actually really I had not thought about that, but that was a really compelling reason to me. You know, I think was that on your first episode, I think. And uh, yeah, for like if people are going to go into the uh, 
if people are going to go into industry or whatever, it's just a way more valuable skill. No, I totally agree with that. And I put that in my notes that I gave my, you know, so actually a month before class started, um, I sent out to all the grad students who are going to take it, basically this memo saying, should you just learn state or should you learn state and R? And, you know, I kind of had a bullet point of the pros and cons. And yeah. one of them was like, if you think there's any chance you're going to get a job in the private sector, you should learn R. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd say so. I always tell them, I always tell them that learning R is like learning a foreign language. Mm-hmm. You just need to not be afraid of it. Yeah. It's like learning a, a foreign language that has a shitload of irregular verbs and, <laughs> and a case yeah. marking syntax. And, yeah. you know, that's right. Just stack overflow. Learn the basic grammar yeah. and stack overflow, stack overflow, yeah. stack overflow. Well, that's interesting because, you know, back when we were in grad school, I don't remember anyone teaching us how to use anything, yeah, yeah. right? I, I mean, they basically, stats was basically just, uh, Well, Bruce know. Western taught in R. Uh, well, he taught in S+, but yeah, it, it was, yeah. you know, proto-R. Yes. Uh, you know, Cro-Magnon R. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, did you guys take stats through sociology or through Woody Woo? Because when I took it, they, we took it through Woody Woo. I had it with Cece Both. Rouse, and she taught in state. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we did. Can I? We did yeah. too. But you know, Leslie, since uh, since you, our Bruce Western class in who know two thousand zero something, uh-huh. uh, there's been a lot of developments, like with our studio oh, yeah. and the uh, Hadley Wickham packages. Like it's it's so much easier to learn and so much more of a pleasure than it was yeah. ten years ago. Oh, yeah. Some socials now a hundred percent are. No, but I kind of felt like it was like, whatever, sink or swim. I'm going to show you how I did this in (laughs) Stata. But like, you know, back then, you know, back then Scott was like, you SAS, right? Um, And then, yeah, and then migrated over to R. I don't remember Scott ever using SAS. I thought he used, uh, I remember him talking about B-rugs a lot. (laughs) <laughs> he he used he would use SAS. First of all, Scott can do everything. Scott would write a C program if uh, know, if he needed. <laughs> I know, but yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, I I don't recall anyone saying, "Look, here are basic programs." Right? They were just like, "Whatever." We all like use Stata, and that was it. And you had to figure it out. And there were people who were who were migrating over to R, but. Yeah. I don't know. Is that, a, is, is that a difference? And I don't know because we don't have a grad program here. Oh, right. That's why I'm asking. Well, the pedagogy of teaching a package, I mean, it's, actually, it's one of those things I think you're right. It's implicit. It's often implicit in what the people are mm-hmm. learning. But um, I'm using this thing this year called Data Camp, which is a paying service. But like, if you're using it for a class, you get it for free mm-hmm. for you and the class for like six months. And yeah. so, it's, so I highly recommend that. I, I, I use that, too, on Matt Solganik's recommendation. Uh, yeah, they don't yeah. support Stata, obviously. They support no. R and Python. R and, Python. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we keep talking about R, but, you know, Python is an incredibly useful language. Yes. Uh, nobody Absolutely. really uses it. I guess some people use it for stats. But if you're yeah, doing yeah. anything but stats, Python's actually a much better language than R. Yeah. Uh, do you have – on that point, do you – have you been on uh, – have you noticed that there's a lot uh, – more younger sociologists, like the outgoing crop, there's a lot more Python yeah. than there was. And I'm wondering yeah. if like R is the next dinosaur and we're we're, <laughs> like, we're like those old old coots who would be uh, describing SPSS, uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, yeah. back in the day. No, it's a risk. It's a risk that I have uh, thought about quite a bit, actually, especially with Python, uh, you know, stuff that's related to uh, computational text analysis and things like that. Yeah. that I'm doing more of. Mm-hmm. And so the workflow for that seems to be a lot of people are doing a lot of text processing in Python and then bringing things yeah. back in and analyzing the data in R. And, you know, you see down the road, 
you know, five, six years, you know, you can imagine a world where people are doing all that stuff, you know, in, in Python, especially if someone comes up with a, you know, a better, uh, you know, yeah. a better workflow for that. So, yeah, so there's always that risk, I guess. But. Yeah, so I, I have a workflow, I have a back burner project where I scrape Twitter using uh, Python. Yeah. And then I, you know, use regular expressions and everything to pull mm. it and basically prepare the data set in Stata. Mm. And then I um, export that to Pyac format. Mm-hmm. And then I do the visualizations and the uh, and any kind of like exponential random graph models in R. And now Steve Vasey, we're thrilled to have him from Duke University. He's an expert in culture and he's spearheading an effort to build bridges between the sociology of culture and decision sciences. We're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. It's good to be here. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. So, Steve, tell us about your project. Uh, well, it's it's right now the only sort of real fruit of this is this paper that I've been working on with my student, Lauren Valentino, uh, which will be coming out in Poetics. But uh, I'm kicking around the idea of, of doing a, a book on this because it's uh, a problem that I see that sociology is just very isolated from a lot of really interesting discussions that are going on in the cognitive sciences and in the decision, decision sciences more generally. And so I'm just, uh, you know, I'm kind of using my post-tenure, uh, post-promotion freedom to think about uh, ways to build those uh, those bridges so, so sociologists can actually join that conversation. Uh, it seems like right now, yeah. Don't do too good of a job of it, though, because uh, Ron Berg <laughs> says that this, the way to power is to find someone more ignorant than you are, right? You, you don't want, you write a good book, but not too good, because you want to keep that structural hole position of being the only sociologist who reads this stuff. Yeah. So... So, Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious. So what kinds of questions, what kinds of projects are, are, are you envisioning yeah. with this like marriage between sociology, sociology and the decision sciences? Well, there's stuff on kind of both sides of the process. So one of the things that sociologists talk a lot about, at least in uh, introductory courses, is like a process of socialization. But, so, mm-hmm. but sociologists know essentially nothing about how people actually learn or, you know, the work of psychology <laughs> about how people learn, you know, languages or categories or things like that. And this is just an area that's totally exploding in uh, in the cognitive sciences. And mm-hmm. so that's an area where, you know, we, we, we have all these sort of informal, almost folk theories about how people learn stuff. And so, you know, when I read this stuff in, uh, in, in these other fields, I start to get like hyperventilate a little bit because I feel like, oh, my gosh, we're being completely you know, left behind in this, in this conversation. And then, you know, on the other side, like how people actually make decisions, you know, how do people decide, you know, I have a 16 year old daughter, we're trying to figure out, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, college stuff and, uh, you know, how do people make decisions? How do they decide, you know, how to time things? How do they decide, you know, wh- where people are going to go? Like what jobs are they going to pursue? What kind of, what kind of, uh, um, you know, colleges do people want to pursue? And I think, uh, you know, should they work or not, you know, or go to college? I mean, I don't think necessarily college is for, for, for everybody. You know, I'm a first-generation college student, and, you know, I don't, I don't think uh, – I'm not obsessed with everyone going to college. Um, so I guess, yeah, like people are making these decisions. They're thinking about them. They're arguing about them. They're talking about them. And just we know very little about how, you know, these kind of choices and decisions get made. And there are people in other fields who are talking about this stuff every day. Not in that domain, but that general process. Can you give us a taste of what – they're talking about in the decision sciences that's generating so much excitement? Yeah, I mean, I'll just, let me give a, an example, like a sort of biographical example. And this is where this stuff really came to a head for me is uh, I was invited to work on this, um, this interdisciplinary grant uh, on uh, transformative experiences. 
And uh, so this was a joint effort between <laughs> psychology, uh, philosophy, and sociology. And so I was asked to head up the sociology side. And the, and the, the question... Was, uh, was Lori on that? Yes, that's her project. Uh, and so she was the, the, the lead person on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened... So this was basically how do people make decisions where, uh, about things where they can't know... Um, where they can't know what the future is going to be like and where the choice itself changes their preferences, basically. So, like, the, the, par- the paradigmatic example here is, like, choosing to have a child. Because after you <laughs> have the child, you're not the same person anymore. So whose preferences are you satisfying? Are you satisfying the sort of pre-decision preferences, the post-decision mm-hmm. preferences? You know, I mean, there's a, there are a whole set of issues here. And, uh, but, you know, how do people make this sort of general class of decisions? And what happened was, uh, you know, I went to this, we had a conference to kick off this grant project. So we gave some money uh, so I gave some money on the sociology side to a bunch of, of social projects and, and you know, there was, there was a psych projects and philosophy projects. And so I got to this, you know, this kickoff conference in Chicago and immediately everybody uh, in the room, the, the philosophers and the psychologists, immediately started talking about utilities and beliefs and credences and all this kind of stuff. And they, could, they talked to each other about decisions and choices and with no problem whatsoever. And the sociologists, you know, around me were just, you know, a little bit shell-shocked, you know, like we didn't have the vocabulary that would allow us to to communicate across that boundary. And for me, that was a really, this was a few years ago. And this for me was like a kind of a decisive moment where like, you know, we could talk to them about all this stuff. Like how do people choose to get divorced? You know, how do they choose how many kids to have? All this kind of stuff. We just, we talk about these issues in sociology, but we don't use the same language everybody else does. And it makes it really hard to, to communicate. So, well, even, even choice may or may not be the right way. Cause with some of those examples, I feel like people don't choose. Well, or rather, to be more precise, some people choose and some people allow themselves to fall into it and have a right. sort of fatalistic attitude. Sure, so right. my understanding is that um, college-educated people, I mean, obviously this varies, right? But as a general rule, college-educated people have a very different attitude towards fertility than non-college-educated people, where college-educated women choose to have children right, or choose mm-hmm. not to have children or choose not to have children yet but to have them later, right. whereas um, non-college-educated women will very often have the attitude of, oh, I'm going to have unprotected sex with my boyfriend or husband, and if I get pregnant, I get pregnant. Right, yeah. No, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, there's a, that, that's a thing that uh, I think sociologists of culture in particular, because that's the, that's the place where I'm coming from, because I know in some areas like demography, uh, there's, there's much more disciplinary crossover because of the structure of the discipline. Primarily in the realm mm-hmm. that I work in, which is cultural sociology, there's just not a lot of actual interchange with work that's being done on, you know, categorization and choice and belief formation. How do people update, you know, uh, beliefs? Uh, there's tons of work on, you know, the issue of, uh, of science communication. Um, uh, you know, how do people uh, process the information that they're getting about science, about climate change, about things like that? We, and, and, and we're just very uncomfortable with that language of beliefs or preferences you know, I mean, that's that's it's just not a language that's that's uh, common to us. And I think that's a real that really prevents us from talking. You know, we want to go in and talk about habitudes, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. and that's just a term of art for us. And so, you know, we want to and, and, and really for most purposes, something like implicit beliefs or implicit preferences would completely be you could talk about that. You could talk about habitudes in those terms with like essentially zero loss of informational content it almost becomes a like a, a symbolic boundary that we use to, to well, keep exactly. i was just going to say it's really a shibboleth so that reviewer number two doesn't say you know why aren't you citing the appropriate things and i, I always say and it's funny that you give the example of um habitus because i always say that um bordeaux is the cowbell of sociology that yeah. no matter how much bordeaux <laughs> you have 
reviewer number two is going to tell you, you got to have more board too. <laughs> work out. Like, no, I mean, I'll tell you, like in the, in the context of motivation justification, we, when I was bringing yeah. in the stuff that was going on in dual process theory, this is when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. I realized I would not be able to sell this without Bourdieu. So if you look at that paper, mm. I sent, you know, I go out of my way to say like, oh, you know, here's this work that's being done in, in dual process cognition and psychology. Yeah. And hey, this is a lot like Bourdieu, and this is a lot like practical and discursive consciousness from Anthony Giddens. And you have to like translate it into this language because otherwise, you know. So I, I've joked around about using Bourdieu as like a body shield, like a, you know, I mean, he's basically just like carrying him in front of me to to defend myself against uh, against criticism, or you know, and uh, and that's been really effective. But it's just, I, I guess, at this point in my career, it's it's a, it's just a, it's more frustrating that and I, that I feel like we're being left out of these conversations. Like there are no. Sociologists don't go to cognitive science conferences, for example, and we're and we talk so much about things like categorization and learning categorization, and that's you know that's a major that's a major issue in in cognitive science, and we don't have anybody who's who's really working on that. How much of that, that do you think that way. even if we don't talk to those people, cite those people, we still get it in a black box form through the methods, right? So we may not talk about how cognitive scientists use it or whatever, but we'll use topic models, and so in yeah, that but, respect, we'll right. get it kind of indirectly. Yeah, I mean, topic models, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I think topic models are useful for some purposes, but they're really, I mean, they're essentially just latent variable models with, you know, that's a right. lot of indicators. Yes, that's and right. And so, like, yeah, so, so I mean, a lot of this stuff I would like to see, you know, and this is, I think, some of the influence of being at Duke where, you know, all of my students have done experiments, for example, and that's a lot of the influence of, of Lynn Smith-Lovin, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of my students who are even studying, in fact, all my students that I've supervised from here have done experiments. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the place where sociologists, I, I, you know, I don't think we should, I'm not, not advocating at all that we move, you know, toward only experiments or anything, but I think we could do a lot more. You don't want us to have our own replication stuff. crisis? I think it would be fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm sure we're going to get one yeah. anyways. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's really interesting that um we're having this discussion with you today, you know, you know the Nobel yeah, prizes exactly. are rolling yeah. out and um and and there has been a lot more a lot more talk about um you know these behavioral economists, you know. Although I got to say, you know, I think they claim that they that they only cite they only cite the psych literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I think that's true, but I think that they also read us and they just don't cite us, right? But I would, anyway, I would almost why. like to believe that. I, I you know, I would. <laughs> I do not believe. I don't that. think they are. I either. totally. Yeah, I that, totally that's like me saying, that. like, oh, that hot girl, she's she's into me. She doesn't say. Give me my yeah. moment. Give me my moment. But, um, but yeah, but uh, but I mean, but I I do think that you know you know economists have been leading this charge with you know doing this work that brings together insights from the cognitive sciences yeah. and you know and insights from econ to try and. You know, I think mostly to balance um, knowledge in the field of economics, but, you know, but also, you know, lending something to the cognitive sciences as well. And um, are we just, uh, is just, is this partly just following the leader again? Or, or are, is there something that we can do better than economists have been able to achieve? Well, part of this is is just again, it's like the same discussion we had about learning R or whatever. I mean, there's there's a part in which like you can imagine a world where you rewind the tape of history, and everybody in all the social and behavioral sciences is talking about habitus. And in that world, 
we can just talk about it. Yeah. But I think what's happened is, you know, for good or for bad, the language of, of, of neoclassical economics became the language that everybody was sort of riffing on. So even when we're talking about behavioral economics, we're talking about departures from rationality um, and, and those sorts of things. And so the language, so in this paper with Lauren, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, how we talk about how, you know, it's basically like, you know, there's this group of people, uh, you know, basically, the you know, imagine a world where, the you know, the Finns have a special type of, you know, the, that they only can write about so, about uh, social science in Finnish, and they refuse to mm-hmm. engage in English. And, and over time, the whole world is basically talking to each other in English. And there, there's this group of people, you know, where it's like, you know, you know what, we can only talk about this in Finnish, only Finnish can capture the true nuances of what we're talking <laughs> about. And it's just, you know, and you, and, and you get left behind in the conversation. So in part, it's not that I think that language is necessarily better, although I do think it's more precise. I, I do have a better idea of what a belief is than, to be honest, even as a cultural sociologist, like what a habitus is. Um, and uh-huh. so, so mm-hmm. but part of it is just that's how people talk, like across so many disciplines. So I don't think it's so much that, you know, we need their concepts as much as that we need a common language so that so that we can so that we can talk with them. That's my that's. You know, that's that's my that's my view. And I think a lot of sociologists are not, um, you know, we're not conversant. We spend a lot of time, for example, you know, learning, uh, you know, things that are uh, older and, I, and, you know, like learning, you know, 19th century, you know, theory, for example, and doing a lot of work in intellectual history, which I think is really valuable. But if you look at the curriculum, you know, it does mean that, that you know, that sociology students don't get exposed to, to relevant stuff that's going on you know, in, in other disciplines, you know, and uh, I do think that makes a difference, especially when you're, you know, kind of smacked up network wise. If you look at my colleague Jim Moody's work on, you know, citation patterns, you know, sociology sitting kind of right in the middle, you know, we're looking kind of at everybody uh, and drawing stuff from everybody, but we're, you know, we're, we're not learning that material in our training. You know, our students are not learning, you know, what's going on in behavioral economics. They're not learning what's going on in cognitive psychology. And I think for some disciplines, maybe that, for some, some sub-disciplines, maybe that doesn't uh, matter as much. But for, uh, for cultural sociology in particular, I think, you know, you have to know, this goes back to Paul DiMaggio's, you know, 1997, you know, culture and cognition paper. I mean, the reason that paper got hmm. so well received is because everybody's sort of like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. And that, you know, that, that perspective from that, you know, that time was, you know, it was, you know, interesting and it was, you know, but it was definitely a, a partial effort. And I don't think the idea, what's happened basically is that now people reach back to DiMaggio 1997, which was not the point. Mm-hmm. The point of that was not to say, um, you know, oh, uh, you know, okay, let's read Paul DiMaggio's work and now we're, you know, doing culture and cognition. The idea was to point us, I think, in perpetuity toward an engagement uh, with these fields where, uh where the, some of the stuff that we take for granted uh, theoretically is, is is empirical for them. I mean, that's his main claim in that paper. You, you want to know what's interesting about that article in particular was I, I, I remember coming to sociology from a, a business and economics background, and it actually made the sociology of culture comprehensible to me. Right. <laughs> by, by by way of the I, I just I found that the cognitive science the uh, that he, he 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 was citing just to be so much more comprehensible and straightforward yeah. and it allowed me to I agree. get a better grasp. Yeah, so I, I thought it was interesting how Steve was talking about how you know we sociologists insist on speaking Finnish and um, having all the details of you know all the nuances that can only be captured in Finnish and get lost in translation. Um, I see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have two thoughts about that. One is that I also see that in EconSoch, where the very title of yes. the subfield implies that we're oriented towards a sister discipline, or at least the empirical phenomena that's the focus 
of the sister discipline, right. although we don't call it sociology of markets. We mm. call it econ soci. Um, but, yeah, exactly. but what's yeah. mind-boggling to me is how bad the understanding of economics is by many economic sociologists. And I don't mean that we can't do proofs. I can't oh, do yeah. proofs, and I'm entirely comfortable with that. But I mean, like, we have this caricatured um, you know, uh, vision of what econ- economics is. I, f- I feel like a lot of a lot oh, of economics, yeah. a lot of sociologists in general, and economic sociologists in particular, talk about economists the way 18th century peasant talk about Jews, you know, or something like that. Like we have this yes. like weird caricatured vision of like, oh, well, they're doing something over there, and it's probably nefarious. Um, yeah, exactly. It, yeah. Oh my goodness. No, I I have to say I abs- that's something that drove me insane coming to this <laughs> discipline, and it's absolutely true. It's like. If you if you just went upstairs and talked to the economists, you'd see that they're really quite aware, for example, that markets don't yeah. always clear. Yeah. And they're really quite they, – they, they know that everybody's not rational. And uh, sometimes I feel like it's the these types of generic arguments about what is what, – what amounts to well, action theory or some it, really – So yeah. like a lot of exactly. sociologists get this where they say like, oh, the assumptions are never true. You know, and this is the problem with yeah. the econ models is that they make assumptions and then the assumptions are never true. And they act like this is something we realize about them. What they don't realize is they're getting yeah. that third hand <laughs> from a review article yes. some sociologists wrote based on econ articles themselves where the economists are pointing out that their assumptions are violated. Yes. That's oh, right. it's even more profound than that. It's like all action theories are yeah. fallible. Well, yeah. All well, macro. Wait, all, wait, because that's my other point. My other point is that um, there there is an action theory that's infallible, which is a theory that is so <laughs> and, and this is kind of a, a Duke sociology more generally. And, and well, Steve was midwife yeah. to this, so I think he can tell where I'm going, even though he, he didn't write it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where sociologists yeah. have this mentality of we don't want to be wrong and we don't want to oversimplify, yeah. and so we want things yeah. to be subtle and detailed and wait for the word nuanced. And so this is, and this relates to this idea of only the glorious language of Borduzian habitus field finish can um, yes. capture all the details in that we feel like there's a lot of nuances in, and there's this idea, like if you say to somebody, why do you guys say habitus? Why can't you just say encultured behavior or preferences? Yeah, right? Exactly. And, and then you say, yep. and they, they'll fucking have an aneurysm and say, because it's so much more complicated than preferences. It's so much yeah. more nuanced and than it's, preferences. But, but it's actually really not. I mean, I'll tell you, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, Marion Fourcad. Marion Fourcad was my neighbor when I was yeah. at Berkeley, and we used to talk all the time about how Bourdieu was basically a theorist of a uh, preference formation. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I mean, and so, and and this idea is just so. It sounds so bad to sociologists, but it makes so much clarity. You know, and when you think about like what Bourdieu is really arguing in distinctions, like, okay, we're, you know, you know, Parsons, you know, basically said, basically, we have two options for, uh, you know, for values or for preferences. You know, we can think about them as being random or we can think about them as being, you know, imposed by society. And so economists kind of went with uh, with random and uh, and Parsons went with, you know, they're basically learned and Bourdieu sort of came up with, you know, minor key. Uh, you know, version of this, but it's, you know, it's, but it's, there, there's all, there are a lot of similarities yeah, there. I, and uh, that's what's I happening. I like there's a lot of places where, you know, for all of sociology holding up Bordeaux as the great hero and econ as the great other, there's a lot of places where if you read between the lines and you translate the language, Bordeaux is basically saying things that are very similar to econ. And in particular, there's, there's, oh, there's parts of Bordeaux that if you just rewrite them in different language, they could have been written by Richard Posner, you know? Oh, no question. Yeah. 
No, I completely agree. If you look at some of the, yeah, the conversation there yeah, with Gary Becker, mm-hmm. I mean, they had a lot of places of overlap. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. This, yeah, the, I, I find that social. I mean, part of it is I do think we have a, an insecurity. I mean, we are a lower status discipline, mm-hmm. um, and we're lower stat. We're lower status than econ for reasons everybody knows, and we're lower status, I think, than psychology because we don't have the, I think, the credibility that comes from having a sort of clinical uh, wing. Or, I mean, well, I don't know what, what the reason is there. Say. I do actually. Yeah, I mean, this might yeah. be a tall um, conversation, too. but I, I feel uh, <laughs> like between the complete and utter collapse of psychoanalysis and everybody recognizing it's pseudoscientific garbage, and then you know, sure. 20, 30 years ago, and now the um, the the current replication crisis in social psych. Um, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, it's not like I feel like we ro- we rose above them. I feel like maybe it's like they came down to our level. Uh, <laughs> That could be. No, I mean, that that very much could be. But I do think there's a, you know, people don't, I mean, think about, okay, let's just think about, let's tie these conversations together. Think about how often when you didn't want to learn R, you came up with a reason not to learn R. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it's like, well, Stata can do everything I want to do anyway. Or, well, you know, R is a really clunky language, you know, get some real syntax, get some, you know, get a good help file. You know, I mean, like, you know, I think you get a very similar psychological thing going on when people hear about economics or they hear about psychology or things that are relevant for their Mm -hmm. subfield is that basically you are motivated to think it's bullshit because you don't want to learn it. You like it. That could be it. There's also there's also to my mind in the discipline there's a widespread retreat into the abstract uh, instead of drilling down to the details of the substantive empirical topics that you're you're getting Wait, involved in like uh, you know like uh, in sociology yeah. like there's a there's a lot of grand theory I, I'm thinking in the areas that I delve into right. like I I I read a lot of econ and, and you know. Frankly, I like a lot of government reports because right. it just it, – it drills down to the minutia of the substantive topics that I'm interested in, like household finance. Like I, I want to know concretely where people's money goes right. and how much they're earning it in firm dollar terms. And when you start retreating up into these broad generalities about you know the, the nature of the oh, market. See, I was thinking right. the opposite and that in its own way, econ is a – especially in like the Samuelson tradition – Econ is a much more of a um, oh, yeah. kind of a blackboard. Let's make a lot of assumptions, simplify things down, and we'll make somewhat implausible assumptions like that, you know, um, there's linear, linear utility right. functions. And it, so I, I guess yeah. it depends. Are you talking uh, econ? econ no, you know what the difference econ is? With right. stats. Econ with proofs is much yeah, yeah, yeah. more abstract than sociology, but econ with stats can be more concrete. But I, I mean, I actually think like a sociologist, and this is what I was talking about with the fuck nuance point. Right. Is that we, yeah. we get lost in wanting to focus on the details to the point we never actually say anything. Yeah, I think I, you're absolutely right. I think the difference is between empiricists and, and, and sure. non-empiricists. I mean, anybody can tack on a few pieces of data, but is yeah. your is your work centered on empiricism and developing facts and then using the theories to explain the facts, but the facts maintain central focus or is, does theory maintain well, central well, focus? Well, if you look at Taylor, I mean, like. You know, if you look at what Thaler said, actually, you know, there's all these articles about him now because mm-hmm. of the, the Nobel. Uh, and uh, his advice basically to students was make your research about the world, not about the mm-hmm. literature. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting. It's just an interesting, uh, you know, counterpoint to, to that idea, because I think the pr- economics by proof was, I think, really high status for, for yes. a while. And now what it's really become is like a bag of tricks for 
you know, causal identification and, you know, in the, in the econometric side. And then, you know, on the behavioral side, it's okay, well, let's figure out all the ways, all the heuristics. And right now it's true. It's like a zoo of heuristics and biases, but there are connections from all those things to real world problems in a way that was probably not the case if you look back to the sort of modeling tradition of the 80s and early 90s. But yeah. My, my first RA job was uh, in finance and uh, I had my uh, boss tell me, he said, listen, I, I, he gave me the parameters of a model. Uh, it was basically like a linear system that I was supposed to maximize and solve. Yeah. And he goes, and I want, you to, I want you to figure out how to construct a system where bankers won't lend to small businesses because it's not worth their time. Mm. And, and about halfway, and so I was trying to solve the system on Maple. And then about halfway <laughs> through, I thought, wait a minute, he told me the answer <laughs> from the outset. <laughs> I'm reverse engineering yeah. this. Exactly. Yeah, there's an aspect to which it's more yeah. theology than philosophy. Or, yeah. Yeah. Same with well, us. But it's also, yeah, but it's a testament to like what you, like what can you do with a, with a simple model? And I think, so I mean, imagine, so, you know, we always make fun of, 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 of economics. And so it's almost rich, a ritual. And but I think especially in like colloquium talks, you know, that type of thing, you know, a throat clearing exercise. But but I think, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in uh, but we, we go pretty far with like, you know, we you know, you do what your neighbors do. You know, people are copying, yeah. you know, um, you know, that so that's our, you know, our simple model is basically, you know, people are trying to preserve the interaction yeah. order, you know, and it's like, OK, yeah. that's not really fully true because, you know, people obviously people are willing to violate the interaction order or, you know, people uh, are just, you know, believe what their networks believe. And it's like, well, anybody who's been to Thanksgiving you know, knows that that's not true. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there are, you know, like so, so we have things that are oversimplified, too. Everybody has things that are oversimplified. So it's so it's basically like how far can you get with the tools that you got? And I think, you know, we could, uh, you know, just be a little bit more, uh, you know, a little more open minded, uh, you know, in trying to just, you know, learn the tools and, 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 and adapt the tools. And it depends on the area. I mean, like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't ask, uh, you know, somebody who's, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, who's studying, uh, you know, gender necessarily to learn, uh, you know, cognitive science <laughs> or whatever, because it may not be directly relevant. Although I could just thought of a hundred ways in which it might be relevant. But, you know, um, <laughs> but that's my bias because I'm, you know, I'm interested yeah. in sociology of culture. So for me, like thinking about classification, thinking about boundaries, thinking about sure. social learning, you know, all that stuff is like, yeah, anyway, it's uh, so I'm not saying that those disciplines are better. I'm just saying like there's a lot. Basically, I feel like we're I have FOMO, basically. It's just like. You know, there, there's a conversation going on that we're not in, and I feel like, come on, let's let's go jump into this conversation. Yeah. So, over so here. speaking of conversations, we're not in, right? We, we, I, I, and to lesser extent, Joe, but mostly me, kind of hijacked this over to the intersection with the discipline that we are most oriented towards, which is econ. But, but, yeah, but you're right. more Sorry, oriented. But well, no, I should be the one. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, but you're more oriented towards psych. And when I describe yeah. you to people, the way I always do it is I say, Steve is similar to John Height. In that he has this model that there's both uh, rational argument and rational beliefs, but then there's also intuitive moral intuitions um, and that they're kind yeah. of loosely coupled to each other and they have this complex interaction. But the difference is, is that even though Steve and John Haidt basically agree on everything, they came from correcting opposite excesses in their discipline. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly okay. right. Yeah, that's exactly. No, I think that Mark Chaves and I here have had that same conversation because when I first got here, he did the, his presidential address to uh, to the um, the Society for the Scientific Study mm -hmm. of Religion, and it was basically about how beliefs don't do mm -hmm. anything. You know what I mean? And 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 so when he got here, you know, we when I got here, he and I had a bunch of long discussions about how he was wrong and how he thought I was <laughs> wrong, and then basically what we realized is he was coming from a subfield 
where basically everybody just took it at face value. Oh, you're Protestant, therefore you believe yep. this, this, and this, and therefore because of that belief you do X, yep. Y, and Z. And you know, and I was coming from a subfield where people have been saying for the past you know 15, 20 years, beliefs don't do anything, attitudes don't do anything, values don't do yep. anything. And so I'm saying, well, no, wait a second, you know. So I do think I agree with that completely, and you can even see that within subfields in sociology where. You know, it, it really is about correcting the excesses of, of oversimplified models. And if you think, you know, if you think all culture is, is a toolkit, like a set of, you know, algorithms or, you know, repertoires that people can use to solve problems, then, I mean, you're, you, that's, that is mm-hmm. true. That's definitely true, but it's not even close to the whole story. So I think that's the correction that I was looking for in that area. And I think we can, you know, use these other fields to try and make, you know, similar corrections in other areas or just to do a better job on understanding things like choice and decisions and classification and, you know, Elizabeth Brooks doing some cool work on that in the dating market. And, you know, I mean, there's just, and, you know, I just see a lot of the places where this stuff is profitable. Yeah, I, I love I just Brooks' kind of do more on of it. Um, choice set formation yeah. and then adjudication among the choice yeah, set. exactly. That's a great, I mean, that to me, that's one of the best examples, if not the best example in yeah. sociology of, of ways that people are actually well, using Well, it's this great because it's like, first of all, it's like, it, it's, it's pointing out that the way that we implicitly think about choices where we just say there's the full choice set and then you're just choosing between them is unrealistic because anyone who's ever bought a car or chosen a neighborhood or chosen between jobs knows that first you make a short list and then you make a detailed and fuzzy, uh, uh, you know, under choice between the choice set. But, um, you know, it's also, it's a beautiful example of, uh, how people, do these other things of, um, you know, in, just in general, how they apply heuristics. And, and the other thing I really like about it is how she managed to operationalize it in terms of like using linear splines to estimate yes. when people are defining the choice set and when they're choosing between them, which was even if you have this idea of, oh, people have this two stage decision process, um, how the fuck do you operationalize it? And so I think she deserves just yeah, as exactly. much credit for importing that literature as she does for, well, I, she deserves just as much credit for figuring out how to operationalize that as she does for importing the yeah, literature theoretically. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's yeah, method is, I mean, that's how like theories get encoded in a lot of ways is through the importation yes. of method. I mean, like that's, yeah, I mean, it's so that, so that the, so that the future, you know, sociologists or future scientists don't have to like reinvent the wheel every time. A lot of the assumptions are baked in and you want it to be that way. You know, you need it to be that way because not everybody can rethink everything from first principles, you know, sort of every time. So I don't know. I just think that cross-pollination is good. I guess I would be happy with just less boundary drawing against other disciplines. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just more curiosity, I guess. And I, you know, that's, that for me would be satisfying rather than say all those psychologists. Oh man, they're so individualist and reductionist. And it's like, have you read anything in psychology? Like it's not individualist and reductionist. Like that is, that Mm -hmm. is crazy. Like that, that view is just not Mm -hmm. correct. Um, you know, the same with economics. And now, a word from Editor Bain. Dear Batman, I expect lying broken in a subterranean prison in Uzbekistan was not the outcome you hoped for. However, I would like to invite you to revise and resubmit that ass-kicking. This invitation should not be read as a promise or guarantee of eventual victory, as punishing blows that were not raised in the first fight may emerge in the next round of brutal beating. Our plan is to invite back your combatants from the first round, all of whom expressed a willingness to beat the living shit out of you again. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Stephen Vasey from Duke University. We are on the web at theannexpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Soshannex. 
and on Facebook, we are The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson, who had to leave early, and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye.